0: Good morning. It is good to be here with you today. It's, it's good to be together as a community. I feel like this thing is sliding off my face, so I apologize if that happens. I, if you are new to East Brainerd, if you just happened to look us up on the web and decided to, to stop by today, we are grateful that you're here. Uh, you may notice, or you may realize, or you may be thinking, this is not the person I expected to be up here uh, as I was looking at pictures and listening to sermons, or if you're a regular member of East Brainerd and you weren't here two weeks ago, because this hasn't been long news that we put out there for a long time, uh, then uh, you may be wondering, as Sean said, Travis is going to be here for a few weeks, where's Chris? Uh, Chris is getting a much-deserved couple of weeks off, a, a kind of short sabbatical, and uh, he has been doing this for 13 years. Uh, he is a blessing. Well, he's been doing it for 28 years. He's been here for 13 years. Uh, he's been a blessing. I'm personally here partially because I enjoy listening to Chris preach every week. Uh, I, am, I am motivated and encouraged by the Spirit speaking through him. Uh, but these last few years have been difficult, not for Chris, just in general. He mentioned a couple weeks ago that the—it's uh, going to stay eventually— Next week, I'll put a piece of tape on it or something. He mentioned a couple of weeks ago about the people who have, the ministers who have quit just in the past couple of years, and I'll admit I'm one of those, right? I spent 21 years in full-time ministry, and I'm not anymore because COVID was hard. Uh, COVID was hard on all of us, but it's been really hard on ministers and the stress and, and all this going on. Uh, and so the elders uh, begged and begged and begged Chris just to say, just take a couple of weeks. Uh, just take a couple of weeks, spend some time with your family, Uh, Let me reiterate, there's nothing wrong with Chris. There's nothing wrong with his marriage. There's nothing wrong with his family. He's doing just fine. In fact, he was texting me this morning because it's really hard to turn off, uh, even when uh, you're given a couple of weeks off. Uh, But I'm excited to be here. As Sean said, my name is Travis Sharp. If you haven't met me yet, I've been able to uh, be around here for the last couple of months, uh, helping out with some spiritual formation and uh, teaching some classes Uh, My day job is over at Boyd Buchanan, where I'm the director of spiritual life, and I get to spend a lot of time focusing on uh, developing spirituality uh, in our students, and in our staff, and in our faculty, and and I'm just really excited about that. And I'm excited to spend the next four weeks uh, speaking what I hope and pray is a message from the Lord to you. Uh, I asked Chris, I said, what do you want me to focus on? He said, discipleship. Uh, So we're going to spend four weeks on discipleship, and I'm going to Be the only place I know where to be in that. Uh, If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn over to Luke chapter 9. That's where we're going to start. Luke chapter 9. Starting in verse 18. The word of the Lord this morning. Once, when Jesus was praying alone with only the disciples near him, he asked them, Who do the crowds say I am. And they answered, John the Baptist, but others Elijah, and still others, one of the ancient prophets has arisen. But Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Messiah of God. Jesus sternly ordered and commanded them not to tell anyone, saying, The Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And then he said to them all, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will save it. What does it profit them if they gain the whole world but lose or forfeit themselves? Those who are ashamed of me and my words, of them the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Grace, cheap grace, is the deadly enemy of our church. We are fighting today for costly grace. With those words, Dietrich Bonhoeffer begins the first chapter of his famous book, The Cost of Discipleship, a book which does not shy away from the challenge of complete commitment and undying devotion to the way of Jesus. The year is 1937. Bonhoeffer is only 31 years old at the time of writing. For those of you who are history buffs, you know that 1937 Germany is an interesting time. We're still two years away from Hitler invading Poland and what is often considered the beginning of World War II, but in Germany, Hitler is already making his presence known. Shortly after Hitler comes to power, he begins the propaganda campaigns and the complete takeover of every organization in Germany. And because there is a state church in Germany, like there is in many nations around the world, Hitler is able to set up puppet elections and bring his own Nazi regime into power and elects Ludwig Mueller as bishop of the German church. Mueller uses his platform to, in essence, baptize Nazi policies as Christian. And many Christians in Germany follow his lead. But there are some, a larger percentage than is often assumed, but not as many as we would have hoped, there are some who declared openly that Hitler does not control the church, God controls the church, and Christians must bow to God and not to Hitler. This group becomes known as the Confessing Church and includes names you may recognize like Karl Barth, Martin Niemöller, and yes, a young Dietrich Bonhoeffer. In a few years, the Confessing Church decides to set up their own underground seminary to train pastors, and they tabbed Bonhoeffer, just 30 at the time, to lead the underground seminary in Finkenwald. The cost of discipleship was a major part of his curriculum. Long before the days when the atrocities of the Holocaust were known, or even World War II had begun, Bonhoeffer was reminding Christians in Germany that the call to follow God was the highest calling and required complete devotion. In essence, if you were a Christian, you must be prepared to take up your cross daily and follow, to die to self, to sacrifice all for God if one truly wanted to be a disciple. Cheap grace is the deadly enemy of our church. We are fighting today for costly grace. Thankfully, we don't live in Nazi Germany And while there are some in this room who still remember the horrors of World War II and the tragedy of discovering the revelations of the heinous atrocities committed at the concentration camps, thankfully we don't live in that time. We don't have to worry about the church being co-opted as propaganda because we are free. We don't have to worry about the atrocities of the Holocaust because we know the value of all people is made in the image of God. We don't have to fear what might be what we might do in these tense moments when declaring allegiance to God may put your life in peril, because hopefully these moments will never come again, at least in our context. Instead, for us, discipleship is mainly pain-free. We declare with our mouths that Jesus is Lord. We model Jesus's own commitment by dying in the waters of baptism, being raised to new life, and we make good choices, We attend church gatherings somewhat regularly. We try not to lie or cheat or gossip, at least not too much. And we can feel relatively good about our faith. Are we perfect? Of course not. We know we sin. We know we mess up. We may not want to stand up here on Sunday morning and announce all of our sins to the congregation, but we're not living in a false reality that we are somehow sin-free. We are sinners in need of grace, and we're grateful for the grace God has bestowed upon us through the blood of Jesus Because we know we deserve death, but we have been given life. However, let's be honest. We may not be perfect, but we're pretty good people. We're concerned for each other. We give our money to the church in good causes. We don't really commit crimes, at least not often. We are faithful disciples of Jesus Christ, saved by grace, thankful for grace. And that gives us hope. A couple of days ago on my morning run, I was listening to the audiobook Swinging a Hit Nine Innings of What Baseball Taught Me by Paul O'Neill. Now, many of you may not know who Paul O'Neill is. He retired from professional baseball over 20 years ago, and he's not a Hall of Famer. However, he was one of the mainstays of the late 1990s New York Yankees that won four World Series in five years. And since I'm a Yankees fan, he's a player I remember well. So the other day, when I was looking for something new to listen to on my early morning runs, I found his book and decided I would listen. At one point in chapter 2, he's discussing the moment that he learned that he'd been traded from the Cincinnati Reds to the New York Yankees. And he said that he learned of it because he and his wife came home from being out shopping and they heard a message on their home answering machine. Now this in itself wasn't new information to me. I remember well 1992... When we, the New York Yankees, yes, somehow we, I'm somehow there. We, the New York Yankees, traded Roberto Kelly for Paul O'Neill. And I wondered at the time, was this a good trade? But it worked out for us. It wasn't the fact that the trade caused me to stop. But I stopped for a moment when when I realized he said he learned of it when he heard it on his own home answering machine. And I thought to myself, no cell phone, just a home answering machine. Now, I don't really think of Paul O'Neill's playing days being that long ago. And yet, a home answering machine seems ancient. I don't even remember the last time we had a home answering machine. We may have had one when Avery was born. Maybe. I don't remember. She's 15 now. The two groups sitting over here probably have no idea what a home answering machine is. No idea what to do. And yet, we used to have these home answering machines. Now, this is probably showing that I'm getting older than I want to admit, but I'm starting to to kind of slow down at times and to think and marvel at how quickly technology changes. I have a distinct memory from Athens, Georgia, which would be over 10 years ago now, maybe 11 or 12, when we're eating at a favorite barbecue restaurant that was decorated sort of like a Cracker Barrel with old antique-type things around the walls. And my girls, who were probably six and four, maybe five and three, I don't know the exact age, but they're staring at what I know is an old rotary phone, but they had no clue what this large, oddly shaped machine was in front of them, and couldn't imagine why anyone might use it as a telephone when they could use one, they could have one that would fit in their pocket or purse and carry with them. We laughed because they didn't know. And there was no reason for them to know. Technology had advanced, and it had advanced quickly, even in my lifetime. Now, we should know technology and advancement of technology is neither a good thing or a bad thing. It's just a thing. It could be good or bad. It just depends on how we use it. But technology is is designed to help make life easier. Currently, 40% of my family is in Ghana serving on a mission trip. Thursday morning, three days ago, they were in my house. Now they're in Africa and have been for two days. That's possible because of technology. Travel's easier. As a teacher and a professor, I somewhat worry about the advancements in AI technology and the ability for students to use AI to write their term papers. However, I had a conversation a couple of weeks with a man who was needing to rewrite a manual at work with some updated policies, and he was able to do it in less than 10 minutes because of AI technology technology made work easier. I can open up my phone and because of apps like Life360, when family members are traveling, I can see exactly where they are and when they arrive safely. And I think back to when I was traveling to college and I was driving eight hours away from home by myself, and my parents had no idea after I left the driveway where I was until I called them from my dorm room to let them know I would safely arrived at college. And how scary that must have been, especially the time I forgot to call. Technology has made life easier. mean, even things like cutting down a dead tree or making hard boiled eggs or enjoying a family movie night together, advances in technology have made tasks easier. We have much to be thankful for and let's be honest. When we discover an area of life that is too difficult in these moments, some good engineer will develop another way of doing something and technology is advanced and life continues to get easier. We like easier. It's why mathematicians and scientists continue to remind us that the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. Go the easy way. It's why my children tell me there's no reason to make your bed when you're just going to get in it tonight and mess up the covers again. Go the easy way. It's why before starting a project, we get all of our supplies together, and queuing, including queuing up the YouTube video, so that we know exactly where to begin for guidance. We like easier. We like easier in travel. We like easier in work. We like easier in grocery shopping. We like easier in yard work. And sometimes, when we're really being honest, we like easier in discipleship. I volunteered for that ministry a couple of years ago. Do I really need to volunteer again? I wrote a check when they asked for funds. Do I really need to show up and help at the community dinner? I know my neighbor's lonely, but when she starts talking, she doesn't stop, and a quick hello turns into this long, drawn-out conversation, and I really wanted to watch the game tonight. Do I really need to stop and say hello? It's really not a big sin. I'm not even sure it's a sin at all. It's really just an indulgence, a way to relieve some stress at the end of a long week or a difficult stretch. It's not really a big deal. And God knows I can't be perfect. I show up for church. I give my tithe. I even volunteered in Kids Praise last month. I promise you I'm more dedicated than most people. So what if I have my little indulgence? So what if I keep my little secrets? What's it matter if I sometimes pledge my allegiance or bow my knee to some other created thing? It's not all the time. That's what grace is for. When Luke shares the story of Peter's confession at Caesarea Philippi, we are already late in the ministry of Jesus. I know it's only chapter 9 in Luke's gospel, but this story happens more than two-thirds of the way through Jesus' ministry, perhaps even three-fourths of the way through. The story that follows our text this morning is the transfiguration, which Matthew and Mark put very late in their story. And if you were to keep reading in chapter 9 in Luke, you would soon get to verse 53. Which for Luke, 9.53 is the turning point for Luke. Jesus turns his face towards Jerusalem. Everything from 9.53 on is focused on the cross. Luke makes the turn very early in his narrative towards the cross. But we're not there yet. We're late in the story, but we're not there yet. We're not focused on the cross yet. Instead, we're trying to discover who Jesus is. And that news is coming at Caesarea Philippi. Now, most of you, if you've heard this story before, are probably more familiar with Matthew's account of Peter's confession at Caesarea Philippi. Matthew draws out the story, adds in extra information, tries to help us show what a a truly momentous experience and, and time this really is. Remember, we're late in Jesus' ministry, perhaps three fourths of the way through. And up to this point, no one knows who Jesus is. No one has made the declaration Jesus is the Messiah. Now, that seems weird to us because we grow up knowing that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. It's the confession we made when we entered the waters of baptism. But people living in the first century, when Jesus was walking around, they didn't know the whole story. They knew he performed miracles, they knew he was a great teacher. But Messiah, they weren't sure about Messiah. You see, Messiah was supposed to come in and kick the Romans out and reign on David's throne in Jerusalem. And Jesus, Jesus talked too much about loving your enemies and turning the other cheek to be the Messiah. So at this point, no one has actually declared who Jesus is. Until Peter. Peter is the first to say, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ. You're the one we've been waiting for. You're the one sent from God who's going to set us free. Which is why Matthew's account of the story most of us are familiar with. Jesus then looks at Peter and says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, on this confession, on the truth that you have just said, on these words that you have spoken, I will build my church. And to you, Peter, I will give the keys of the kingdom of heaven. That's the story we know. It's the one we're familiar with and the one we recognize, but that's not the story Luke tells. Luke doesn't focus on all that stuff. Luke makes the story quick. Jesus says, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you're the Messiah. And Jesus says, great, don't tell anyone. Slightly odd exchange, especially when done quickly. But as we read Luke, we realize it's not an odd story for Luke. Because Luke doesn't want to focus on Peter's confession of who Jesus is. Luke wants to focus on what comes after the confession. Luke is always concerned with what we learn from the story. So he makes the exchange quick so we can focus on Jesus' response. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, great. You know who I am. You now recognize I'm the Messiah. You're exactly correct. Now let me tell you what it means to be Messiah. Messiah doesn't mean riding in on the back of a stallion with an army into Jerusalem to declare war and kick the Romans out. It's riding into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey where I will, in essence, turn myself in and allow myself to go to the cross. Because being Messiah is being willing to die for the people. It's being willing to take up your cross. It's being willing to suffer for the sake of others and for God. Yes, sitting on the throne of David will come, but not before suffering for the people. Glory is still part of the future, but suffering comes first. And then Jesus looks at his disciples, his best friends, the ones who have traveled with him for over two years, the ones he has mentored, the ones he has just declared who he is, and he says, if you want to follow me, expect the same. Discipleship means the cross. Discipleship means sacrifice. Discipleship means self-denial and learning to tell yourself no. Discipleship means giving up your desires for wealth and pleasure and family and status and similar ideas. Discipleship means your allegiance is to the lamb who was slain and you're willing to follow that lamb to the cross to death for the sake of others. And this isn't just accomplished once at your baptism or once when you rededicate your life or once when you're on a mission trip or once after a particularly convicting sermon. This is a daily task a recurring adventure, every morning you wake up and declare, today I will take up my cross, and then you do it. Now at this point, some really smart Bible student somewhere on the perimeter is thinking to themselves, silly preacher. It's clear he hadn't preached a sermon in two years, and I wonder if he's even studied his Bible very closely. Because it doesn't take someone with an advanced degree to figure out that Jesus isn't talking to the masses here. He's talking to Peter and some of the other apostles. He's talking to the elite, the super Christians, which means the call of self-denial, the challenge to pick up the cross is meant for Peter, not for us. We can't live that way. We aren't even required to live that way. That type of disciple is for super Christians, preachers, people on staff, maybe some elders, but not regular church folk. Silly preacher. You've clearly been out of ministry too long. That's an astute observation, I would say. In the story, Jesus wasn't talking to us. We weren't there. Jesus was talking to the apostles, which means maybe it's not for us. Thank God we found the loophole. We don't have to feel bad anymore. We don't have to be any more committed than we already were. God isn't really expecting more from us. Eat, drink, and be merry. That should be our new motto. I don't think any of us would actually promote the mantra of eat, drink, and be merry as if that's what God would want us to do. But it is true that often when we find a hard teaching of Jesus, we search for the loopholes. Because frankly, we want life to be easier. We want discipleship to be easier. We don't want Jesus to invade our way of life too much because we're comfortable where we are and we don't want to change. And sometimes, when we read our Bibles, we feel like we might need to change. Because the way of Jesus is hard. You've heard it said, do not murder, but I say, don't even be angry with someone. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I say, don't even lust after someone in your heart. You've heard it said, love your friends and hate your enemies. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. The way of Jesus is hard. Discipleship is hard. So we find the loopholes. Because we just want life to be easier. And we go searching for cheap grace. As Bonhoeffer describes it, we want forgiveness without repentance baptism without discipline, life without the cross. And we offer cheap grace to others because we think that's the only way they'll come. Don't put too many commitments on them. They may not come back. We don't want costly grace. We don't want the cross. We just want a couple of hours once a week to make us feel good about ourselves, and we can go on living the way we want to live. We want cheap grace. But it's cheap grace that causes us to look more like our culture around us than Jesus. It's cheap grace that causes us to confuse our political ideologies for the gospel. It's cheap grace that keeps us from committing to a ministry because it might force us to give up a pleasure or a hobby we enjoy. It's cheap grace that keeps us from dropping our nets, from leaving the tax booth, or moving out of the tombs we've made our home to follow Jesus on this crazy adventure of discipleship. But thankfully, our astute friend has helped us find the loophole. Jesus wasn't talking to us in Luke 9. We don't have to search for costly grace. Except, Luke's audience is different from Jesus' audience. When Luke records the story, it's a generation later. Which means Luke's audience is not the Apostles. Many of them are dead at this point. No, Luke isn't writing to the Apostles. He's writing to everyday Christians who are sitting in a church setting very similar to where we are today. And who are struggling with work and family and finances and relationships Luke is writing to regular church folk, normal, everyday people, people without extraordinary gifts or callings, just normal Christians like you and me sitting in church, which means there's no loophole. There's no denying the message. There's no saying, I can resist. Luke is describing the call of discipleship for all of us, and Luke is saying the call of Jesus is the call of the cross, The call of Jesus is self-denial. The call of Jesus is for discipleship, which means sacrifice. And Jesus wants to know, do you want cheap grace or costly grace? Do I want cheap grace or costly grace? Perhaps that's the question we should ponder. Perhaps that's where we should leave the message today. Do I want cheap grace or costly grace? Cheap grace is the deadly enemy of our church. We are fighting today for costly grace. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may he give you peace. We're about to sing a song. Uh, You may be here today because you want to take on Christ in baptism. Maybe you already made that decision because of what God has been doing in your life, and we would love to celebrate that with you we would love to take some extra time this morning and witness that. Or maybe you just need prayers. Uh, There'll be some people in the front, there'll be some elders in the back uh, that would love to pray with you if if that's what you need. Uh, Or if you just need to be in your pew and you just need to have a a moment of self-reflection, this song is also for that. Uh, You don't have to come forward, you don't have to go to the back, you can stay where you are and you can spend time with God. Because God doesn't just meet you on the front row or in the back, God meets you where you are. And God would love to spend some time with you. Or grab the person beside you. And say, hey, let's talk. Will you pray for me? So we stand and sing.